Let's open to Romans in the 15th chapter. Romans chapter 15. Many, many thanks to Christy for stepping in last minute to play the piano for us this morning. We uh, have discovered some real hidden talent there. My wife was going to play and uh, Colin came down with a cold and so she didn't know she was playing until yesterday. So I always admire people that can just step in and do it, which I cannot do myself. I have no musical talent whatsoever. But the first shall be last, right? And the last shall be first. When we get to the new world, I'm going to be better than you all. (laughs) All right. That's actually not what that passage means. (laughs) It's actually a statement of equality. We're all going to be on an equal playing field, but Anyways, Romans 15, Romans 15, after 14 and a half chapters of exposition and application of the gospel, Paul comes at long last to several personal remarks. Paul penned Romans during his third missionary journey while he was at Corinth. The year is probably about 57 A.D., And it's now with a sense of fulfillment and reflection that he comes to his final words in chapter 15 and 16. Paul begins with an expression of confidence in his readers in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Paul is probably speaking with just a touch of hyperbole, the way we often speak when we want to really encourage those who are hearing us, that the Romans actually had some deficiencies in their understanding of the gospel is obvious by the fact that he just spent four and a half chapters developing the gospel, laying it all out for them. But Paul is speaking here the way a coach might speak after working with his ill-prepared players for several weeks or even months, when the coach comes along and he says, now you can just go out there and you can win this game, well, that coach may have his reservations, but he knows that if they follow his instructions, they can and they will succeed. That seems to be what Paul is saying here in verse 14. And Paul continues this line of thought right through verse 17. Look at verse 15 now. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. We hear the apostle, for good reason, emphasizes the necessity and the validity of his ministry. Paul, like the other apostles, was appointed by God to just carry forward the work of Jesus Christ after his ascension. And Paul emphasizes his ministry of reminding The gospel needs to be rehearsed, and rehearsed often. And Paul here emphasizes, as he does often, that the gospel was for the Gentiles, not merely for the Jews. 
That the Gentiles should enjoy the benefits of the gospel is so commonplace to us today that we really often forget about how revolutionary this was in the first century. This gospel really is for all peoples. The Jews did not always accept the Gentiles as equally included in the covenant promises that God made with the Jews beginning with Abraham. And now with all this background in mind, Paul moves on to discuss a significant turning point in his ministry. And the remainder of the chapter just breathes an air of nostalgia for the past and an air of anticipation for the future. Notice verses 18 and 19. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled, notice this, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul had been used in extraordinary ways to just advance the gospel among the Gentiles. And Paul now has a sense of completion. Those of you who have reached retirement age, or perhaps a critical juncture in your vocation, probably understand Paul better than the rest of us. What had God called Paul to do? To preach the gospel. More specifically, to preach the gospel on a northwest trajectory from Jerusalem all the way over to Illyricum. And this is the only biblical reference that we have to Paul preaching in Illyricum. But it certainly can fit into Paul's missionary movement in his third missionary journey. If you were to look at a map of Paul's missionary journeys, you'd notice that he ventures out of Israel along a northwest trajectory. He passes along this arch that moves from Syria into Asia Minor and down to Macedonia and eventually all the way down into Greece. And Illyricum lies just northwest of Greece. It's today where you would find countries like Albania and Bosnia. Paul probably reached the southern regions of Illyricum. Illyricum runs along the eastern shore of the Adriatic, and across the Adriatic lay the boot-shaped peninsula of Italy. And in the heart of Italy is Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. And Paul says he has fulfilled his mission to preach from Jerusalem all the way over to Illyricum. And of course, he does not mean that everyone had been converted in those areas, certainly not. But he had established indigenous, self-perpetuating churches with local elders and deacons to carry forward the work. But Paul himself is a restless spirit. He feels the need to just keep on moving, to press the gospel in the virgin territory. And thus he writes in verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. 
But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul summarizes here his calling. Paul is a missionary, evangelist, church planner. Some men are called to build on the foundations laid by others. And if not, there would be no second generation churches. Paul himself is a pioneering spirit. I know pastors who have a compelling urge to plant new churches. They get things going. They get a building up. They seem to enjoy great success and stability in the ministry. There's a thriving church. And suddenly they just turn that over to someone else and they move on. I actually really, really admire those individuals because I am not one of them. I think of somebody in Colorado that I know. Went out and got a great church going and then going great and he walked away. Still going strong today, but he started another church and another church. People really have that kind of giftedness in the body of Christ to just plant and then move on and keep pressing the gospel into new territory. That's been true all the way through church history. St. Patrick, who was neither Catholic nor Irish, he was from England, exercised in Ireland a ministry very similar to Paul's. He planted churches and then moved on to the next location. He wanted to see Christianity just spread across the entire island of Ireland, the way that Paul wanted to see the gospel spread to the Roman Empire. His, his, his region was all the, the, whole, the whole island, not any one place on that island. In the 18th century, the Lutheran missionary Hans Edge, who should be better known, became known as the Apostle to Greenland. He built up stable churches and then ventured on to the cold Arctic nights. Again, his ambition was to win Greenland, not any one location, but Greenland for Christ. In the 20th century, Li Tianan moved across China, establishing a large network of Chinese house churches, the Fang Cheng Fellowship. And like Paul, he was eventually imprisoned for his efforts. But he set his sights on China. Let's reach China with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church history is really full of similar, restless, evangelistic spirits who constantly just want to move on and press on and push that gospel into virgin territory. And Paul literally tells the Romans his desire is to press on to new places. And he does not mean merely the next city along the Roman roads. He, in fact, wants to go all the way over to the far end of the Mediterranean. He wants to go to Spain. Paul never intended to settle in Rome. He intended only to visit Rome. And even so, Paul is going to tell us that he could not come immediately. But he hoped that he could come through Rome in due course on his way ultimately to Spain. 
And verses 22 through 29 now give us a bigger window into Paul's rather complicated itinerary. So let's read verses 22 through 29. Paul says, This is the reason why I have often, so often, been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, again, he has a sense of completion. And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you, notice this, in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that's the Jews' spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, some of you may be able to identify with Paul's plight. He's actually finishing out one phase of life. But all of a sudden, the next phase seems very complicated. Let's unravel this passage, verses 22 through 29, with four observations. All right? First of all, Rome was not a first priority for Paul because the city had already received the gospel. We often think of Paul just really wanting to get to Rome, to start a church there. That's wrong. Rome was not even a first priority. Now, it's true that Paul desires to go to Rome. He wants to meet the Christians that are there, but clearly he is preoccupied with pressing ministry elsewhere, and he has been for a long time. And his work has taken him to regions without any gospel witness. And even if he makes it to Rome, Paul is very clear he wants only to pass through on his way to Spain. Now, Rome had received the gospel long before Paul arrived. Obviously, he is writing to Christians in Rome, and he himself has never been there. So this is a very interesting question. When exactly did Rome receive the gospel? I want to take a guess at it, and it's only a guess, and our second observation. Here's the first one. Rome was not a first priority for Paul because the city had already received the gospel. Second observation, Paul did not come to Rome as a church planter. That's because somebody else had already done that work. So, when did Rome receive the gospel? Well, in chapter 16, we will learn of Priscilla and Aquila and how they had already planted a church in Rome in their own home. 
But almost certainly, even they were not the first believers in Rome. So, when did the church begin? And I want to spend just a little time on the second observation in order to combat the error of Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church has long attempted to validate the Roman Catholic Church, Rome, by appealing to the doctrine of papal apostolic succession. The Roman Catholic Church assumes that their lineage is traceable to both Peter and Paul as the founders of the Roman Church. But there's actually no evidence that Peter founded the church in Rome. And I'll not deal with Peter this morning. But it's also apparent from our passage that Paul also was not the founder of the church in Rome. As of 57 AD, Paul has never been to Rome. And there's already a thriving church there that he can write an epistle to. So he's not the founder. So, in verse 20, who is the someone upon whose foundation Paul does not want to build? Paul likes laying the foundation, but he's not going to build on someone else's foundation. So who's the someone? Well, possibly that refers to Priscilla and Aquila, but in fact, there are numerous other possibilities. And why am I saying that? Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 2 and let me show you. Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, we are going back approximately 27 years to around the year 30 A.D. And here we get to listen to Peter's first sermon following Jesus' resurrection. Peter, at this point, is part of a discipleship group that includes 120 believers. They had been gathered together in the upper room. 120 of them. And after, get this, just one sermon... That number will swell by 3,000 converts. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And just where are these people from? Well, they were Jews. They had gathered together to celebrate the Pentecost feast. But verses 9 through 11 of chapter 2 describes their points of origin. Let's read those verses. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and notice this, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, probably Gentiles, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in, their own, in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So where are these people from? Basically all over the empire, including, very importantly, visitors from Rome. This is 30 A.D., 
And guess what? Those 3,000 converts, that's just the beginning. Skip ahead to Acts 4 and verse 4. Peter keeps on preaching. And how many convert? Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And it's probably safe to assume an equal number of women, if not more women. In fact, in the early church, it was women that came into the church in disproportionately large number, numbers compared to the men. But let's just assume an equal number. That's 10,000 people. 10,000 people added to the previous 3,120. And now we have 13,120, give or take. But there's even more. Skip ahead now to Acts 6. Here we read of deacons who are appointed to care for the needs in the church because certain people are being neglected. And we read the outcome in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. There's any doubt about the necessity of deacons. Notice the correlation. You appoint deacons and the word of God continues to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Now, it's difficult to say exactly what the term multiplied greatly means. It's almost like uh, we just can't keep counting these numbers. They're so large. Are we talking about exponential growth? Or are we talking about linear growth? Well, let's be very conservative Let's just assume that the number doubles. 13,120 times 2 is 26,240. You're talking really, really large numbers that are being converted in the early church. And there are some modern church historians who are more concerned with sociological theories than exegesis that have come up with some really interesting suggestions. Ivor Davidson, a church historian working out of New Zealand, argues for a growth rate of 3.4 to 3.5% per year. I don't know where he gets those numbers. But beginning with 120 in the upper room, he writes, there were perhaps seven to 8,000 Christians in the world by the year 100. That's pure nonsense. There were possibly three times that number after just three sermons and acts. We're talking massive numbers of people. And there was only one way to account for these numbers. I mean, larger numbers than Jesus himself ever saw. There's only one way to account for those numbers. Jesus said, I'm going to send another member of the Trinity I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit. So there are thousands upon thousands of Christians already in Acts 6. And Paul, the persecutor, doesn't show up until Acts 8. So turn to Acts 8. And notice a really important statement. Paul tries to silence this burgeoning church. He can't stand these numbers. 
And what's the result? Acts 8 and verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Think of that. 26,000 converts going about preaching the word. And now in the remainder of the chapter, what Luke does is he narrows in on just one individual, Philip. And Philip preaches the gospel across three ethnic barriers in one chapter. He preaches to the Samaritans and then to the Ethiopian eunuch. And finally, he preaches to the ancient Philistine territory of Azotus, all within just one chapter. And that's one of those converts out of thousands in Acts 8. Well, the impression that we're left with is just the rapid multiplication of the church as thousands and thousands of people are hearing now the good news. And don't forget that some of those Jews and proselytes in Jerusalem had traveled from Rome. And certainly, they must have returned home after the Feast of Pentecost. So friends, it is entirely possible, and in fact, it's quite likely that a church takes root in Rome even before Paul converts. Think of that. Even before Paul converts, there are already believers in Rome. And certainly before he set out on his first missionary journey. Now think about all the time that transpires now between Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit and Paul's letter to the Romans. We're talking about approximately 30 years. Think about all that happens in Acts between Pentecost and the middle of Paul's third missionary journey. And all the while, there was a growing church in Rome, and it's being fueled by the power of the Spirit of Pentecost. Very often when we think about Paul, we think of him as just the tip of the spear when it comes to missions work, right? He's the first guy in. Well, in some cases he is. He goes to new places. But when it comes to Rome, he's not the first one there at all. Paul was only one of thousands of early converts who just pressed the good news all over the empire. Now, let me give you a little historical aside. Let's turn to Acts 18. Acts 18. Suetonius was an ancient Roman historian. His Lives of the Caesars is an important, albeit gossipy, account of the first century emperors. And in his account of the emperor Claudius, he tells us the emperor, quote, expelled all the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus. And historians are virtually certain that Crestus is Christ or Jesus Christ. And this reference to rioting, though probably overstated, likely references Jewish antagonism toward the rapid growth of the followers of Jesus Christ, many of whom were Jewish believers. They're getting angry that some Jewish believers are following this Crestus. 
And so Claudius just says, I'm going to kick all the Jews out of Rome. And when did this happen? Well, in Acts 18, Paul is on his second missionary journey. And after passing through Athens, he comes to Corinth. And the year is A.D. 49. Still eight years before he wrote his epistle to the Romans. And notice verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. We'll see them again in Romans 16. And notice this, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, but they were tent makers by trade. So here are just two of those Jews that were kicked out of Rome, Aquila and Priscilla. And like Paul, they were tent makers. And again, this event happened some eight years before Paul would even write his epistle to the Romans. This really, truly is marvelous. Christianity had gained as a widespread reputation in Rome by AD 49 that it's causing a disturbance. And Claudius comes along and just kicks all the Jews out. That tells you something's happening in Rome. And Paul's never been there. In other words, we are not talking about just a handful of Christians meeting in somebody's home. We're talking about something much bigger happening in Rome already. We're talking about a thriving church long before Paul writes to them, even much less visits them. So with all that in mind, let's go back now to Romans 15. And I should probably reiterate that that was all part of the second observation. Right? That was a long digression. But here is the second observation. Paul tells the Romans, I am not coming there as a church planter. The church is already there. And that leads to a third observation. Thirdly, Paul expected the Roman church to help him take the gospel forward to Spain. Look at verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Clearly, Paul does not view the Roman church as a struggling little church plant. Rather, it's time for the Roman church to go forward with missions. It's time to become involved in missionary work to the farthest reaches of the empire. Now think for a moment about everything in Romans that actually precedes verse 24. In chapters, 15, in chapters 1 through chapter 15, in verse, first, let me say that again. In the first 15 and a half chapters, there we go, of Romans, Paul really just sort of plums the depths of the gospel. He explains and applies the gospel. In fact, Paul takes us on a deeper dive into the gospels, more in Romans than any other book in the New Testament. But when we come up for air, Paul suddenly confronts the church with their obligation. You understand the gospel now, now send me forward to Spain. 
if I can say it this way, go deeper and then go farther. Go deeper theologically and then go farther missionally. Churches can indeed spend enormous amounts of time exploring the depths of theology. And there's nothing wrong with that. Unless, that is to say, your intellectual endeavors become a hindrance of the Great Commission. On the other hand, churches can become so fired up about outreach and mission that they pioneer a new ministry every month. You come back in five years and the energy has just fizzled out because they were never grounded theologically. I think what Paul is doing here is really striking an appropriate balance. He explains the gospel in intricate detail, line by line. And he assumes that those first generation converts in Rome can really grasp it. And then he summons that church. Now you've got the gospel. Now go forward with missions. Send me to Spain. Go deeper theologically and go farther missionally. This is why our passion and our priorities at our church are so important. Our passion is bringing people to Christ and Christ-likeness. We preached on that earlier this year. We also prioritize apostolic preaching. This is exactly what you find in the early church. They had a passion for Christ, but also a passion for apostolic doctrine. You've got to hold both together. And that was our third observation. There's one more rather curious detail in the passage that's easy to overlook. But it really does just buttress up now a major theme that Paul has developed throughout the book of Romans. And it is is our fourth observation. In these verses, Paul clearly desires that Jews and Gentiles be united Jews and Gentiles come together as one great church of Christ. You see that, for instance, in verse 27. Gentiles share in the spiritual blessings of the gospel. Now, Romans has two major axes. Let me just knock my microphone off here. Here we go. Two major axes. Traditionally, interpreters have focused on a vertical reading of the book. And for very good reason. Romans explains how it is that sinners like you and me can be restored with God. How we can be restored in that vertical axis with God in heaven. That's a very important way to read the book of Romans. In fact, that's the primary axis. In my estimation, this is indeed the most important way to read the book. How can I, the sinner, come in the right relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ? This was the great question that was posed by Martin Luther, that tortured soul in an Augustinian monastery. How can I be right with God? How is that even possible? The answer he found was the book of Romans. Christians turn more frequently to Romans than to any other book in all the Bible when they set about explaining the gospel to potential converts. There's a reason we refer to the Romans road. 
It's because Romans just fixes that vertical axis. It shows me how to be rightly related with God. Romans tells us that we are sinners, justified by faith alone and Christ alone, and that we are raised to new life with Him in a new creation. But having said that, more recently, commentators and good commentators have also emphasized the horizontal axis. And sometimes they debate about which one is more important. I really think the vertical is more important. But here's the horizontal axis. Romans concerns how Jews and Gentiles can be united as one people in Christ. In fact, how all people regardless of their backgrounds, regardless of their culture, their language, their custom, their skin color, can be united as one people in Christ. Romans has a lot to say about bringing Jews and Gentiles together. Paul had a great deal to say about how the Old Testament law really was designed to point to Christ and how we as New Testament believers relate to that Old Testament law. He explained all that. Now again, Romans' primary focus is how I, the sinner, can come in the right relationship with God. But as you move along through Romans, we notice again and again and again how Paul is pulling everybody together in unity in Christ. Paul explains how the Jew of the Old Testament is united in Christ with the Gentile of the New Testament. That's the horizontal axis. And Paul has urged over and over and over again that there is one Savior and one gospel for all peoples. And Paul really, truly is the perfect guy to sort out all this complexity for us. Paul was radically, radically devoted to Judaism. And he knew the Old Testament possibly as well as anybody alive. But now he comes to nearly the end of his third missionary journey. And he has been pressing the gospel into Gentile territory from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. And he's got those churches on a good, solid foundation. And he wants them to understand going forward that Jews and Gentiles are united in Christ. And really, just to buttress up this truth, Paul is going to explain to the Romans why he can't come to Rome right away. In verse 25, he said, At present, however... I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. That Jerusalem church was largely a Jewish church, and they had some severe needs, droughts and famine, and many of those disturbances that we learned about back in Matthew 24 would have greatly affected the church in Jerusalem. So what does Paul do? What does he do for these Jews as he's labored among the Gentiles? Verse 26, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And friends, just don't let the magnitude, the magnitude of these words really be missed. These are Gentile Christians First-generation converts living in Macedonia and Achaia. And Paul goes among them and he collects an offering from these Gentiles to relieve the Jewish believers back in Rome. 
In fact, Paul says the Gentiles were motivated by both a sense of joy and obligation to do this. Verse 27, for they were pleased to do it. This wasn't reluctant at all. They're pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. You Gentiles are all grafted in, into the covenants that God made with Abraham. Let's help the Jews also in their material needs. So when you put all this together, it's really quite curious. Paul, again, is a missionary pioneer spirit. And he really wants to go to Rome, but only to pass through and go all the way over to Spain. However, despite his great zeal to move further and further west, he turns around and goes in exactly the opposite direction. He goes back to Jerusalem carrying an offering. And in those days, you didn't just catch a weekend flight. Between walking and sailing, it could take months, even years at times, depending on weather patterns and everything else, to really go about all the way back to Jerusalem, all the way forward to Spain. Paul knows this is no easy decision. Now, Paul, again, is at Corinth. He's more than halfway to Rome from Jerusalem, and he wants to go forward to Spain, but again, he goes in the exact opposite direction. What that means is, apparently, Paul saw the need to communicate in person, in person, to the Jewish church that the Gentile believers really do care about them. He wants to bring that offering in person. He wants to move on that horizontal axis and show the Jews, the Gentile converts, care about you. God has indeed broken down walls and barriers that stood between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is so keen to communicate to those Jerusalem Jews that the Gentiles, perfect strangers, care for them that he's got again to deliver that offering in person. And what's truly astonishing is that in the book of Acts, we learn that Paul was twice warned, don't go to Jerusalem. There are radical Jews waiting for you. And Paul went anyway. And Paul was arrested. Now, when the gospel of Jesus Christ just reorients our lives on the vertical axis, justifying us by faith alone, grace alone, through Christ alone, the gospel will then reorient our lives on the horizontal axis. Jesus said it. How will all men know that I love God? I love my neighbors. Now, there's just one more question you're probably asking, and I'll just address it really, really briefly as an appendix to the sermon. An appendix on a sermon. There you go. Here's the question. Did Paul go to Spain? Did Paul ever go to Spain? Well, we know that when he returned to Jerusalem, he ended up arrested and was eventually sent as a prisoner to Rome. So he did go to Rome. But did he ever go farther? And the answer is debated. The book of Acts ends abruptly. It doesn't tell us of Paul's fate. I personally believe that there's a very strong possibility, and there's enough room in the chronology, 
to suppose that Paul did indeed make it to Spain. And the best evidence comes from a man named Clement, Clement of Rome. Clement was a pastor and a church father. Philippians 4 and verse 3 describes Clement also as a co-worker of Paul. Writing around A.D. 95, Clement says of Paul, quote, He preached in the east and in the west. He won the genuine glory for his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and having reached the farthest limits of the west. The phrase, farthest limits of the West, in a Roman context was Spain. Spain was the western edge of the Roman Empire. After that, of course, stretches the vast Atlantic. Now, it's really difficult to imagine a friend of Paul and a church leader in Rome writing only 30 years after his martyrdom really getting it wrong. It seems to me that this is a good testimony that Paul did indeed go all the way to Spain. Now, there is some additional evidence, but it is later in chronology. The Muratorian canon fragment, it's dated to about 170 AD, refers to the departure of Paul from the city of Rome as he goes on to, to Spain. Also, there are 4th century church fathers, including Cyril of Jerusalem and John Chrysostom and Jerome, who all claim that Paul made it to Rome. Now, these are later sources. They're reliable, but we cannot be certain. So there's a good chance he did indeed make it to Rome. But here also is what we do know. The Apostle Paul, all the apostles, John the Baptist really want us to recognize that the story of Jesus of Nazareth is bigger than them all. Whether or not Paul ever made it to Spain is really irrelevant when you consider how the church actually grows. When the gospel is preached, the spirit of Pentecost comes along with that new believer and empowers him to go tell others also. And the same Spirit who planted the church in Rome preceded Paul by 30 years. And indeed, the gospel did indeed go to Spain. Whether Paul made it there physically or not, the Spirit of Pentecost did come to Spain. And in fact, it kept going west all the way across the blue Atlantic Think about where you're sitting today in relation to Spain. If Clement believed that Spain was the farthest limits of the West, what would he say of Clemson, South Carolina? And I was born in California on the other side of the continent and heard the gospel from my earliest days. Friends, the spirit of Pentecost is alive and expanding and growing and pressing the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to Illyricum to Spain and to every remote corner of the world. We really truly are organically connected to a story that is bigger than all of us. And that's the story that we have explored now through 15 chapters. The story of a God who through the gospel of Jesus Christ has come to reconcile sinners to himself. Shall we pray together? Father, we're so thankful for this man of God that you used to carry the gospel forward from Jerusalem to Illyricum, possibly to Spain. 
But I pray, Lord, that it might indeed be our ambition to just keep going with this gospel, Lord. We long for the day that all tongues and nations and voices and tribes and kindreds and all peoples all over the globe will sing the wonders and the praise of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May he receive all the glory. Amen.